And when you add it up, the US economy can produce now about 7% less than it would have been able to without the pandemic. Is the Fed caught between a rock and a hard place? That is the question the BlackRock Investment Institute is asking about the Fed's attempt to fight inflation and still have sustained growth in the face of supply constraints. Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing the economy and finance. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. Since the start of the pandemic, economies can no longer produce as much without creating price pressures that lead to higher inflation. But if production capacity can fall, can it increase again? And can there be sustained growth despite a slow recovery for supply chains? To help answer that question today, I'm pleased to welcome Alex Brazier, Deputy Head of the BlackRock Investment Institute, who has recently authored a piece on the issue in our new blog-style series, Macro Take. Welcome, Alex. Oscar, thanks. Thanks for having me. Alex, help me understand, when we talk about supply chains, what exactly are we talking about? And how did this become such a popular topic since the pandemic started? Well, firstly, let's think about what supply chain means in this context. It's not just about moving goods from one place to another in a supply chain. It's actually about anything in that chain from producing a good or a service and actually getting it to the consumer that wants it. So it's the whole production process. And that's been disrupted, obviously, during the pandemic lockdowns. It was very difficult to produce things, very difficult to supply, particularly services, and very difficult to get goods from A to B. But importantly, even as economies have reopened and lockdowns have been lifted, we haven't seen the supply capacity of economies like the United States and others return to the path it was on before the pandemic. And to get at why, you have to understand really the two major forces driving that. And we think there are two. The first one is that spending in the economy has rotated massively away from spending on services and towards spending on goods. So less going out, more stuff on Amazon. And that means that the supply capacity of the service sector, that can't move, still stuck in the service sector. So it's effectively a bit stranded. So the economy has been trying to produce the same amount, but with effectively less supply capacity. And the supply capacity hasn't been able to move to goods. And that's why we've ended up seeing bottlenecks at ports, bottlenecks on the roads and in trucking, and problems at factories trying to supply this volume of goods. But the second reason we've seen these problems in the supply chain and why they haven't actually come back after the lockdowns have been lifted is because we've seen a big reduction in the supply of labour during the pandemic. There are now 1.9 million people less in the labour force in the United States than there were before the pandemic. They've left the labour force. And on top of that, We've seen it's much more difficult for companies to be able to fill open job vacancies from the pool of unemployed. And some of that has to do with the fact that the skills that are needed to fill the job vacancies in the goods sector are very different to the skills that the people who have been made unemployed from the service sector actually have. And some of it's to do with the fact that people have just become less attached to the labour market through the pandemic. So we've got less labour supply, a big rotation in the mix of demand, 
both of which are the kind of fundamental drivers of why the economy overall doesn't seem now to be able to produce anywhere near as much as it did without generating bottlenecks, difficulties in supply, and as a result, inflation. Basically, what you're saying is that even though economies are reopening and we are in less of a lockdown world than we used to be, supply chains just haven't responded as favorably. Yeah, and I think this is actually the really interesting thing. And one of the key things to understand about the current macroeconomic environment is that the pandemic seems to have left quite a long lasting legacy in terms of the supply side of the economy. So the first thing is that big shift in spending away from services and towards goods. That was kind of understandable at the depth of the pandemic when people were locked down. But actually, even as lockdowns have lifted, we've seen that people's habits have more fundamentally changed. The going out less, spending on recreational activities is less. People are traveling to work less, they're traveling less. And at the same time, they're spending more of their income still on goods. And so even though we've seen some adjustment in that as lockdowns have been lifted, it still looks like a much longer lived legacy of the pandemic. And the same on labor supply as well. A lot of people have come back into the labor force as lockdowns have been lifted and the economy has restarted, but only about half of them. So we're still left with this legacy again of the pandemic that a lot of people haven't come back into the workforce and don't seem set to. A lot of those people were aged 55 and over and maybe they've decided that they don't want to come back to work. They will bring forward their retirement date. And again, that's where the pandemic has actually had a long-lasting legacy. But what this means, I think, is really important because we've tried to calculate what these things mean for the ability of the economy to produce goods and services. And when you add it up, the US economy can produce now about 7% less than it would have been able to without the pandemic. And that means that even though overall levels of activity in the US economy aren't yet back to the path they were on before the pandemic, we're still seeing pressures on supply capacity, the economy is having difficulty meeting that level of activity, supplying the goods and services. And as a result, we've got very high levels of inflation, particularly core inflation, it's broad based. And that's fundamentally what's driving the economic picture at the minute, this reduction in the ability of economies to produce goods and services in this legacy of the, of the pandemic. So let's go back to the labor markets for a moment. Earlier, you mentioned that there are now 1.9 million fewer people in the workforce since the pandemic started and that they haven't returned. And also job openings have not come down relative to unemployment. So what are we to make of that? And is there anything in the more recent economic data that is catching your attention? There are two issues here. One is the, the reduction in labor force participation, people leaving the workforce, has been a major feature of the pandemic's legacy. And that's one reason why the economy is able to produce only so much less than it would have been able to without the pandemic. The other thing, as you say, is that we've seen very high levels of job vacancies relative to unemployment. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that the quit rate, the rate at which people leave jobs of their own volition, was actually 20% higher after the lockdown than it was before. So people were less attached to their jobs. They were shopping around more for other opportunities. And that's still true today. And the level of job vacancies is still very high relative to the level of unemployment. And what that tells us is that the labor market's just functioning less well. It's less good at matching people who want a job 
with the available job vacancies. And that's another kind of reduction in labour supply. More recently, in fact, in the last week, we've seen evidence that job vacancies have started to come down. Now, some might say that that's evidence that this problem on the supply side of the labour market is actually beginning to resolve itself. Actually, I don't think it is. I think what we're seeing here is evidence of an emerging sharp slowdown in the US economy. In fact, the US economy is basically stagnated in the first half of the year. Fewer people are quitting their jobs. We've seen the quit rate begin to come down. Firms are hiring less. We've begun to see the number of job openings come down. And in time, we will see the level of unemployment go up. It's just we haven't seen that yet. So it's too early to say that the supply side of the labour market is recovering. Actually, some of these issues seem to be beginning to look like they're being resolved. But actually, they're not being resolved. They're just being covered up by the fact that the economy has slowed and is now stagnating. So Alex, recently, the bid released its mid-year outlook episode. And Jean Bovan, head of the BlackRock Investment Institute, laid out the possibility that the Fed may take the approach of whatever it takes to tackle inflation. We are hearing from central banks a lot more of a whatever it takes approach. We'll do whatever it takes to bring inflation to 2%. But that doesn't... And we've seen the Fed hiking rates uh, this year, and in some cases quite aggressively relative to the recent past. So does this mean we're headed towards a recession? And how does the Fed's decision-making around interest rates impact the recovery and the supply chain issues that we've been discussing? Well, I think the really crucial thing is that the Fed can't do anything about these supply problems in the US economy. You can't use interest rates to persuade people back into the labor force. You can't use interest rates to change the mix of spending between goods and services. And that means the Fed is basically between a rock and a hard place. It has two options. It can either raise rates so far slamming the brakes on the economy, crushing the interest-sensitive parts of demand in the economy, such that these supply constraints don't bite anymore because activity in the economy has been reduced. And on our calculations, given how much the supply capacity of the economy has been compromised in this legacy of the pandemic, actually to squeeze all the inflation out of the system to stop any of these supply constraints from binding, the Fed would need to generate a fall in output in the US economy of around about 2%. Now, that doesn't sound like a big number. But in terms of what normally happens in a recession, it's very big. It's two thirds of the recession we saw in the global financial crisis in 2008. And it would probably mean 3 million more people unemployed. So it would take a very serious recession, not just a recession, a very serious recession to actually alleviate these supply constraints or the symptom of these supply constraints and squeeze inflation out of the system. So that's option A for the Fed. Option B for the Fed is don't generate a recession that deep. But as a result, given these supply problems, run the economy at a level of activity where you get persistent bottlenecks, you get persistent supply difficulties, and of course, you get persistent inflation. You have to live with a bit more inflation. So we've got this invidious choice, either generate a very deep recession by historical standards, or live with a bit more inflation. Now, we think the Fed is making a lot of noise about doing whatever it takes to tame inflation, and is, of course, raising rates very sharply. That has already begun to slow the US economy. The US economy is basically stagnated. We think it is going to drive it into a recession early next year. But the Fed hasn't acknowledged quite how far it would need to go. It hasn't quite acknowledged 
what whatever it takes actually means. And so when it sees what it's done to the US economy early next year, we expect the Fed to then pivot its approach, not raise rates further. And as a result, we're going to be in a position where we have both a recession and volatility and growth, and we're going to be living with more persistent inflation. So this isn't like the old world where if you had a recession, inflation would fall too low. This is a new regime characterized by these problems on the supply and production side of the economy, in which even though we're going to have probably a recession, we're still going to be living with more persistent inflation. And actually understanding that the Fed has no good choice here, either deep recession or living with inflation, I think is key to understanding the outlook in the United States and other developed markets actually right now. So how do you see the issues that we've been discussing with supply chains playing out in the future? Do you, do you see a recovery on the horizon? Uh, and if so, what might that take? Yeah, not immediately is the short answer. I think two things would need to happen to solve all of these problems. The first is that the mix of spending would need to go back to where it was pre-pandemic. People need to spend less on goods and more on services, and that way we can alleviate lots of the problems in goods supply by bringing online capacity that's dormant at the minute in the service sector. And the second thing that it would need to happen is that we need to bring those people back into the labour force and alleviate some of these problems in the labour market where firms are having trouble filling available job vacancies from the pool of unemployed. Now, both of those two things can happen in the long run, but they haven't happened during the period in which the lockdowns have been lifted. And they're going to take, in our view, quite some time to heal, by which I mean quite a number of years, actually. And that's because those habits, those, that change in spending habits is probably here for some time now. It will take time to get rid of that legacy of the pandemic. It will take time for the supply capacity of the economy to be built up in goods production in order to meet that new mix of demand. And the second thing is that, as I said earlier, lots of people have left the labour force now. The population has aged during the pandemic. That's one reason why people have left the labour force. The other is that lots of people have left the labour force because they've brought forward their retirement date. They're not coming back either. So for all those reasons, we think the process of healing here is going to be much, much longer than the period of just lifting the lockdowns. As a result, this is what gives the Fed this really difficult choice now in the period ahead. It can't just rely on the supply side of the economy suddenly improving in a way that will allow inflation to come down and growth to be sustained. Because this recovery in the supply side is going to be pretty slow and probably incomplete at the end of the day as well, the Fed faces this really difficult choice, this rock of generate a very deep recession or a hard place of living with a more persistent inflation. And Alex, sticking with inflation for a second, you just used the word persistent when, when you were describing it. Well, why is persistent inflation so scary to people? Tell me why you know, we should be concerned about this. Well, there are two real driving forces for the inflation we're seeing today. One is a rise in food and energy prices caused by global shocks. That's scary because it erodes people's real incomes, reduces their spending power, and diminishes economic activity further down the road. But the even more fundamental issue here is that inflation isn't just about food and energy prices. So-called core inflation, stripping out those things, is also pretty high, running at nearly 5% in the US. 
Now, that tells us that the level of activity in the economy broadly is at a much higher level than the economy can kind of comfortably supply and produce for in the long run. And that's why we're getting all these price pressures. So the reason that core inflation is so scary is because it's telling us that the economy isn't able to produce this much. And even though the economy isn't back on its kind of pre-pandemic path, the economy isn't able to meet that level of activity to supply it comfortably. And so it's pretty scary because it's telling us that we're now on a lower path for economic activity for a long period now. The pandemic wasn't just a sort of deep V that came straight back again. It's going to have this long-lasting legacy. And that's going to mean lower living standards and either, as I say, higher inflation for a persistent period or very weak growth and recession. And you've touched on this concept of the economy being at a lower production capacity since the pandemic started. So why is that so concerning for central banks in particular? It's fundamentally this issue that when you've got very low production capacity as a central bank, you either have to crush demand in the economy to bring the level of activity down to that low level of production capacity. And that means you don't have pressures on supply and you don't have inflation. Or you have to let the economy run at its old kind of levels of activity. But the problem is you will get bottlenecks, you will get pressures on supply, and you will get inflation that you have to live with for a long period. We went through a very long period when central banks didn't really face difficult choices like this. The reason there was pressure on supply was because demand had become too exuberant, too high. And so it was easy for them. They just had to raise interest rates, stabilize demand, and as a result, they stabilized inflation. This is very different. This is a world where in order to stabilize inflation, you have to generate a very deep recession. You have to raise unemployment. You have to put people out of work. And that's a much more difficult trade-off for central banks than the one they've been used to, actually, for decades now. Okay, so you've painted a pretty sobering outlook from an economic perspective and talking about supply chains, inflation, and the trade-offs that central banks face. But what is the takeaway from all of this when you're looking at this from an investment perspective and considering a portfolio? Yeah, and it sounds pretty miserable and scary in some respects. But as our mid-year outlook describes, actually, there are some constructive portfolio decisions that can arise from this. And I I would highlight two. The first is that in an environment where central banks face this really difficult trade-off, they're much more likely to end up living with a bit more inflation than in the past. The Fed, for example, will probably generate a recession, but it probably won't go through and generate the depth of recession that's needed to actually squeeze all this inflation down in the face of these supply constraints. And so in portfolios, we prefer index-linked bonds, linkers, over nominal bonds, because we think inflation is going to be a bit more persistent than the market's currently pricing. The second conclusion we draw for portfolios is that with a recession on the way, the economy having stagnated, a recession, in our view, on the way, as central banks do raise rates and squeeze economies down, we see that volatility more priced into credit assets than we see it priced into developed market equity assets. And as a result, there's a relative opportunity there. And so we look at being overweight credit assets and underweight developed market equities to exploit that. And that illustrates a general point that in these more volatile environments, volatility can actually bring opportunity opportunity that arises because markets get out of whack, different markets get out of whack, pricing in one area doesn't reflect pricing in another. 
And with nimble enough portfolio allocation, those relative pricing anomalies can actually be exploited in a portfolio to generate additional returns. And maybe just the last question, Alex, which is we've talked about inflation in the U.S. Are there any regional differences in terms of inflation and the impact in other parts of the world? Yeah, it's really, really important question this because there's a lot of similarity between developed markets in this respect, particularly Western developed markets. They are all experiencing a long-lived legacy of the pandemic in reducing their ability to produce goods and services. We've seen it in the US, as I described, but we also see it now in the euro area, which has high core inflation rates, even though levels of activity are not back to that pre-pandemic path. It too has experienced a rotation of spending away from services and towards goods. It too has experienced a reduction in labor supply. But the reason for that reduction in labor supply is a bit different to the United States. And that's because the euro area had furlough schemes, people remained attached to the labor market, but they did reduce their hours. People worked less during the pandemic. And that reduction in average hours has been sustained since the pandemic. And as a result, you've got the same reduction in labor supplies in the US, just for a slightly different reason. People are in jobs, but working fewer hours. And the same also is true in the United Kingdom, where we've seen a big reduction in labor supply. And again, this big rotation of spending away from services and towards goods. So those things are all common across Western developed markets. And that's why they're all experiencing broad-based core inflation and why all of their central banks effectively face the same invidious choice between this rock of recession and hard place of more persistent inflation. Well, it's certainly not an enviable spot for uh, central banks to be in. So, Alex, thank you so much for uh, providing great insights here. And thank you for being on the bid. Thanks, Oscar. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Bid. On our next episode, and to celebrate 100 episodes of The Bid, Gargi Chowdhury, head of BlackRock's iShares Investment Strategy, sits down with Lauren Simmons, the youngest female trader on the New York Stock Exchange, turned personal finance expert influencer. Lauren joins Gargi for a candid conversation on financial literacy and Lauren's curriculum for personal investment that she's designed for the five draft basketball players taking part in our iShares Future Ballers campaign. Larry Fink might even drop by. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Make sure you subscribe to The Bid wherever you get your podcasts. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock and not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer, solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the reader. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not get back the amount invested. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. In the US and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the UK and non-European economic area, EEA countries, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management, UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12th Rugmorton Avenue, London EC2 and 2DL, telephone plus 4402077433000, registered in England and Wales, number 02020394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. Please refer to the Financial Conduct Authority website for a list of authorized activities conducted by BlackRock. In the European economic area, this is issued by BlackRock Netherlands, BB, 
is authorized and regulated by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. Registered office, Amstel Klein, 11096 HA Amsterdam. Telephone 020-549-5200. Telephone 312-549-5200. Trade register number 1706-8311. Free protection. Telephone calls are usually recorded. For investors in Switzerland, this document is marketing material. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited. Company registration number 20001043N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities or Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13006165975 AFSL23523 BINAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. Before making any investment decision, you should assess whether the material is appropriate for you and obtain financial advice tailored to you having regard to your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, and circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice, nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund, nor shall any such shares be offered or sold to any person in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase, or sell would be unlawful under the securities law of that jurisdiction. If any funds are mentioned or referred to in this material, it is possible that some or all the funds may not have been registered with the securities regulator of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Peru, Uruguay, or any securities regulator in any Latin American country and thus may not be publicly offered within any such country. The securities regulators of such countries have not confirmed the accuracy of any information contained here in the provision of investment management and investment advisory services as a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the investment services guide available at www.blackrock.com forward slash MX. Copyright 2022 BlackRock Incorporated. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Incorporated. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.